Hi everyone, I'm Brijraj. I'm the CEO and co-founder of Spry. Mobility is the lifeblood of an economy. Everyone and everything around you is the result of it. And in this episode of the Founder Thesis podcast, your host Akshay Dutt talks to a mobility entrepreneur, Brijraj Bhuptani. Brijraj has explored the mobility space from multiple perspectives. His first venture was Rydler, which was an app to help people navigate public transport. And Rydler went through a journey of pivoting from a B2C product to a B2B company before it got acquired by Ola Cabs. Next, Brijraj started Spry, which is a full-stack solution for physiotherapists helping them to ensure that their patients get back normal mobility. Spry is a great example of a product that is built in India for the world as Brijraj is targeting the US market as their primary source of revenue. Listen on and if you like such insightful conversations with disruptive startup founders, then do subscribe to the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app. I grew up in Mumbai for the most part of my life. In fact, the first 22 years of my life, I was in Mumbai. My mom and I lived together. So we are, she's from Mumbai as well. I've grown up with my maternal parents uh, and they were always Bombaykers. So they moved here during the early influx of people moving from Gujarat to Bombay as businessmen. So early life was very different for me. To give you some context, my parents separated when I was one year old. So I, I, that's why I grew up with my maternal grandfather. And what was your grandfather's business? So they were into exports. So they used to export stationary products, sports products to Africa, Middle East, etc. So at that time, we didn't have the likes of India Mart, etc. Right? So trade was based on more knowledge and information arbitrage. So they had a lot of information on manufacturers, they had a lot of information buyers. And they would do the job of connecting the two, which websites do today. But that is what they were doing. And we also had a small pencil sharpener factory. If you remember those pencil sharpeners that we used to use as kids in Jamnagar. Wow, pretty enterprising. So like you grew up seeing business in a way. like My grandfather is my role model. My maternal grandfather, Melanaji. I've learned everything about life and business from him right and this was a very exciting conversation i think when i was about 10 15 years old i was traveling something with him he was old so he had some problems with his eyesight so i used to take him everywhere and on one of the conversations in the train journey was that why do people buy stocks i was in a gujarati family i came from, I come from a gujarati family and there are a lot of people in the share market as you say right? we were while we were a middle class family a lot of our relatives had made some money from stocks and i used to keep on hearing them that oh they are in the stock market and they made money they did this the stock market etc so I very curiously asked my grandfather as an innocent child that, okay, what the hell is this share market and why are we not in there? That's why my grandfather told me that, yeah, it's you buy shares in another company and you buy and sell and if the company makes profit, you make profit. I don't enjoy it. If you want to do something, then have shares of your own company. Okay, so that stuck with my mind. And I decided that day that someday I'll become an entrepreneur, have a listed company. This is my second startup. My first company did not list, but list. we sold our shares to a big company, right? And the goal of the second company is to actually list somewhere. So I did my diploma first in electronic engineering, and then I did my bachelor's degree in electronics engineering from Bombay University. From Mumbai, okay. From Thadavan Chani College, which is one of the better colleges in Bombay. So this is also an interesting story that how I got to CompSight. So I was always supposed to be an electronics guy. I went to the US, did my master's as well. After your B.Tech, like you yeah, did? Yeah, after I did it. Immediately when I graduated in 2002, market conditions were not the best, right, after the dot-com burst. So everyone thought might as well study a couple more years and see what happens. And U.S. was a rage at that point of time. So I went to the U.S., I did my master's. And when I was about to graduate, 
I got two job offers from a company called Qualcomm. Qualcomm is like the Microsoft for wireless companies. I was a wireless engineer. I did my electronics engineering, wireless communication. And there are two job offers. One in RF engineering, where you actually work on the radio, you work on the hardware. And the other was in software engineering. You make video on devices. I said, it's a no-brainer in India. We've been trained, right? You do what you've pursued. Why do you have to change fields? It's called akin to changing fields. It was a no-brainer. Then, okay, I'll do RF engineering. I took up that job offer. Few days before joining, there were mass layoffs in that field. And I was devastated. I said, okay, now I'll have to go back to India because how can I find another job before I graduate? And I would have my visa. Obviously, I got the other job offer. So the HR next day called me. He's, and that was a uh, saving grace for me. He said, no, we're happy to take you in software, although you wanted to do hardware. I said, okay, what choice do I have? Let's do software. It's important to stay in the US, get that H1B visa that we didn't for and uh, figure out along the way. Then I'll switch to hardware. I got into software. We were one of the first ones in that time. We were pioneering video on handset. So this was back in 2005. So Qualcomm was a chip company, but they started as a cross as a cross seller value. And they started selling software stacks also on top of the chips. So they were starting. So this was a very new division. It was called the multimedia division. Cameras, no one knew the cameras are omnipresent today, right? One in 2005 was using camera on a phone, video on phones. It was not that common. So that group was like a startup. It was a very new team. We had bought over some company. We had to merge with them. We had to handle their code. I had to travel places because when a phone was being launched, video would not work. So. Incidentally, it turned out to be a great experience for me. I was in a big company, protected. At the same time, I got the experience of a very young and energetic team. And it was building the future of mobile. And in 2005, video and camera was the future of mobile. Today, today it might not seem so. 2005, it was, right? So then what next after that Qualcomm stint? How long was that? I always knew that I had to come back to India. And two years into my journey, I quit Qualcomm. One of the 0.2%, right? People in the Qualcomm that did that in the history of Qualcomm. And you quit to join a startup? Yep. I only applied to startups. So I got two job offers at the end of a six-month search, interviews, etc. And one was in LinkedIn and the other was in Nextwave. Nextwave was developing the fourth generation Wi-Fi chips, WiMAX chips for that. Ideally, if I had the right financial advice, if someone could have told me what the future is like, I would have obviously taken LinkedIn. LinkedIn was a series A or series B funded startup with that CUC where they went. Reid Hoffman must have been still running it at that time. Uh, Reid Hoffman, yeah, he was the CEO at that time. He's the CEO and founder, right, at that time. And they didn't have they didn't have a very big company, but the advertising email that came to me was stock cafeteria, free food. That was the advertising email. I still remember that they sent to me. Right? And uh, I was one of the first few LinkedIn users as well, I remember. I said, no, software can't be Where will we do software? The hardware background, we are electronics. Why would I want to wait in software? Let me stick to electronics and let me go to Nextway Wireless, which was a WiMAX, uh, which was developed by next generation of chipsets for, and the idea was to disrupt, disrupt Qualcomm at that time. Then I ended up joining them for two years. Yeah. So that's how I switched from Qualcomm to a startup. Okay. And then what, like how long did you work at Nextway? Yeah, I worked there for two and a half years. Great experience for me. Found it difficult initially. So you go from a company which is highly protective, everything is ready-made. For example, I've written a piece of software and I have to go and test it. I just go down to the lab, plug my phone into the, we call it, you should call it the BOA machine or whatever it is, the one which simulates the wireless communication. And then you're ready to piece. You just play with your buttons, you test your software, you come back to the lab. Uh, you come back to the office and you deploy the software. Oh, but in next year, when you go to the lab, first of all, the, the lab is empty, right? There's no one in the lab. There's no test harness. How do you, you test it? How do you simulate it? So then you have to create everything, right? Uh, in Qualcomm, when I was stuck in a problem in the first six months, when I was transitioning from hardware to software, I had colleagues whom I can rely on. Here, there's no one, right? There's very few people who you can have, and everyone is very busy. So you have to figure out a lot by yourself. So I spent what I used to work 14, 16 hours every day by myself in the lab late in the nights. I was determined to figure it out, right? Uh, so after the first bumpy three, four months, I built up everything, right? So they were also building video on WiMAX. I built up the entire stack for them. And I became a rockstar engineer again for them. And then obviously, because in a startup, you do everything. So whenever they were presenting to the customers, Sprint at that time, or we were presenting in Las Vegas in the consumer electronics show, I was at the forefront of things. So while I would not be pitching, uh, I would be hearing the guys talking, the business guys talking to the clients, pitching to them, talking to them, 
and it was during the CS show that uh, I told her, okay, I'm done. Now I have to start my own company. So I got out of, in the break, I got out of the room. I called my uncle, who is a telecom engineer and uh, he's an entrepreneur, first generation entrepreneur. He moved from the US in 85 to India. I told him, okay, I'm coming back to India and I want to start up something by myself, right? So uh, I'm done building things for others. So that was a trigger point. Obviously, it took me a long time after that to get started. So I worked in Nextway for two and a half years, the first two years in the US. And then during my stint at Nextway, I told them that it was before the Lehman crash. I told them I want to move to India because I was around 28, 27, 28 years old. So I was also thinking of getting married and better to do it in India rather than keep on shuttling. So I moved to India. I started the India Center because I was moving to India and they didn't want to like, want me to leave. They said, okay, why don't you start an India Center? We let this do some, get some development and for me and we don't lose you as well. We set up a development center in Mohali for that matter. And I used to spend 15 days in Mohali, 15 days in Bombay for that, um, in that case. And we built a good team. Right. And uh, but unfortunately, after the Lehman Brothers crash, funding dried up. And more importantly, the technology that we were building, no one picked up. So we were building. So 4G had two ways to go. It could either be LT, the long term evolution that is pretty well in today, or it was Vimax. Sprint was the only company which was opting for Vimax. Right? Now, I didn't have that foresight when I picked up the today's kids. If I mean, I interview today's kids, they have asked me for the vision, the trends and all that. I didn't have that. I just thought it's a cool thing to build and let's go and build it. Out. But uh, it would have been hard for anyone to predict, right? Whether LTE will be the winner or Ymax. No, not necessarily. So if you look at the stock price, it was Sprint who was backing Ymax and the others, right? The Singulars and the AT&Ts. And the stock of Singulars and AT&Ts definitely went up after the iPhone launch. So they were on par. AT&T, I think Apple launched with AT&T after the iPhone release, right? It was an initial partner. Sprint was not. And those guys just took off, right? And, uh, uh, iPhone pretty much decided who will win that. iPhone decided in some extent. iPhone has decided a lot of things in the future, right? And iPhone would have taken Vimax. I think we would have been, I would have been a billionaire, a millionaire, you know? but yeah. One fine day, they shut down the operations and whatever assets they had, they just kept it on the side and they silently, really softly told us, why don't you look for something else? Unfortunately, a couple of things happened at that time. My mom was diagnosed with cancer. I said that I don't want to take up anything full time. Then also it's the right time for me, right? Not taking a full time. And not that I have to take care of her full time, but being around at the right time was important. I said, why don't I do some experimentation with my own company at this point of time and figure out and if something great happens, great. So the idea that I initially had did not work out at that time. Right? So I wanted to build something in transport, in traffic communications, etc. But could not build that out meaningfully. I was not fully focused as well. Like a hardware thing or what? Like Yeah, it was a combination of hardware and software. So I'll tell you, okay, one thing about me, when I lived in the US, I became a very punctual guy. I was uh, never late to meetings. And it was something one of my uh, seniors taught me in school that uh, we had a 10 people meeting and people showed up five minutes late. And then it's typical Indian style, like you meeting, right? We're five minutes late. He said, all of your five minutes, 10 minutes each, five minutes, 15 minutes have been wasted. And that's the math he told me. And that made sense to me, right? And, and I said, yeah, it's actually cool to be on time and not take time for granted. So when I, used to, when I came to India, obviously when I was working with Nextwave also and all that, one of the things I saw was people using traffic as an excuse. So between 2002 to 2010, I think we had the first stock market boom. We had the stock market boom and the number of cars on the road just went up by crazy, at least in Bombay and Delhi, right? Those places. So people would very conveniently use traffic as an excuse, right? I'm late because I was back in traffic and I am late. I'll come in the first half or the second half. So am I supposed to wait like the entire half a day for you to come? I'm seeing people in my family, like the road is empty and we are late and they're saying, no, no, we're stuck in traffic. Because there's no visibility. How do you know? How do you verify that claim? 
I also used to be, because I have a stickler for being punctual, if I had to be at any meeting, I would reach in early, quite early, right? because I would plan in ahead or I would take the train. So I said that if I don't have build a system for myself, which would give me real-time information into traffic in the cities, right? And I might not be able to avoid traffic, but I can at least plan my thing better. So if it takes me 45 minutes, I can reach, I can leave accordingly. If it's, if it's an alternate route that's possible, then I can take that road accordingly, right? So it just sounded like a good project to do. Classic Indian problem, right? there's a big problem to be solved, but there's no in place. And in US, I used to use these systems, right? So when I should travel between San Diego to LA, I would look up traffic information on the highway. If the highway was blocked, I would take the interior roads. But I would not travel at all, right? I had the optionality with me. So I would not do it. So why could I build that in India? Why isn't that available in India? So then I started dabbling with that idea. But again, a very difficult problem, right? I did not even know where to get started. So I just got lost in the whole thing, right? How do I get GPS? How do I get sensor? Because there's no sensor data. There are no camera feeds. I went to the police and said, why don't you give me a camera feed? And... I will actually analyze this information to give you traffic information. He said, then there's a security problem. So 2008, 9, if you remember, we had some bomb blasts in India, right? So security were also very high. So they were sensitive to that. And I was not smart enough to figure out how to break those barriers. Right? But coincidentally, what happened is one of the companies I was working with, he was a GPS company. Yes, he was a GPS company. So the model that I had implemented was, I'll go to a GPS company. I'll tell them, give your data to me. It is sitting on your server, right? Uh, you're doing nothing with it. To that time, we didn't have big data or any of those analytics, etc. So it's just sitting on your server for no reason. I'll pay you some money. Give me the data. I'll convert into traffic information. And that sounded very cool because you're not putting own hardware. You are not incurring the capex. And I thought I'm the smartest guy in the world, right? I'm building a traffic system without deploying capex. The government should love me. The police should love me, etc., etc. Never the case, right? But so I started working with the gentleman. He was named Alok Kumar. He was running his company, and he was also trying to scale. He ended up getting an offer from US-based retailer called Sears. So Sears is one of the biggest. Used to be one of the Amazon of the 19th century, right? They were really big. Yeah, yeah. They they had that mail order catalog. I think they pioneered the mail order catalog. Precisely. So whatever Amazon touched there, if you took the Sears playbook and you look at the Amazon playbook, Amazon exactly copies that. The mail order pie book, which is the marketplace, then they did private labels, they do private labels, uh, etc. The category expansion, having your own branded categories. Amazon is exactly copying that playbook in the online world, uh, at least in the e-commerce space. So Sears was a pioneer and Sears was obviously on the decline post-Amazon, right? For 2010-11, they had been acquired by a private equity hedge fund guy. And the hedge fund guy wanted to transform Sears into an online company like Amazon.com. Now this new hedge fund person coming and taking it, the staff is still legacy. I don't think the UDN ever happened. A financial guy coming in and taking it over and uh, bulldozing his way didn't really work beyond a point. So we hit some milestones with Sears.com. We hit to 1 million GMV. The mobile app was doing well, but it never scaled. And, and Amazon was a rocket ship, right? It was moving at a much more faster pace than all of us could ever imagine. Right? So two and a half years into Sears, yeah, I decided that I told Alakumar that it may leave. I served a three to six month notice period because I was one of the early employees that had a lot of responsibility. And then I handed over the range to someone else. And uh, yeah, that's how Sierra. That was my end of, I think that was the first, yeah. I became an employee once again after Ola acquired us, but I think that was my end of my, me ever being an employee. Right? Since then I've been mostly an So uh, tell me about that journey of starting up the, from idea to go to market to product market fit? Ideally, when you're doing a business, you have to be disruptive. I was not that kind. And I that's something I've changed for the last 10 years during my entrepreneurial journey, something that go all in. It's, I was wanted to do it, but not wanted. So it's like the guy standing at the edge of the swimming pool, wants to swim, but also don't scared of jumping. So during this two and a half years, my mom recovered from cancer, as I mentioned. I got married. I had taken my first home loan, buying a house in Bombay at that time was, even today it's expensive, but that time also it was expensive for someone with my background. I did that at 
Yeah, it's a once in a lifetime thing. Yeah, and then uh, I paid off the home loan also, whatever little uh, we put on a saving. Then we decided like everything is taken care of, and we didn't have kids at that time. But this is the only time I can potentially start. So how long will I keep waiting? If I have to do it, I have to do it now. Very inspired by Million Dollar, I think the boxing movie Million Dollar Baby, right? In which she says that you need that one shot in life, right? And I thought that I'll I'll regret it if I don't have that shot in life. So I've everything I've done everything possible to prove myself as a good employee. Meet Qualcomm, meet Nextwave, uh, and meet CS for the matter as well, right? And this burn my conversation with my grandfather and all that. So if that has to ever come to fruition, this is the time to do it now. Right? You can't wait. Also, another trigger moment happened at that time. Right? So as I said, I used to do these things on weekends, right? And Twitter was getting popular at that time. This was the day when Palar Sahib Thakre died in Bombay, right? So typically, historically, it used to happen that whenever something a politician had passed away or something happened, uh, city used to go berserk. There would be shutdowns. There would be lockups, lockdowns everywhere. But that day, the city was actually quite peaceful. There was no activity on the road. There was no protests on the road. But people were generally panicking. I was on Twitter at that time because we had all come back. We again, all of us had come back home. Right? We were not working in the office at that time. We all come back home, fearing that there would be backlash on the road. Actually, nothing was happening. And I saw, I was seeing on Twitter that there's a set of people who are panicking, and there were a set of people who are saying that there's no, don't worry. Take your own time. Don't panic. Go home, but take your own time. Don't. There's nothing on the road. But this information, there was an information arbit. No, they don't know each other, right? So I started becoming the bridge between the two. I was taking whatever these guys were saying, retweeting that, and to these guys, tagging these guys. They don't worry. And all of a sudden, I had like 600 followers in 15 minutes. <laughs> I started this offline thing, and then within two days, it became like 2,000 followers just doing this. And the monsoons happened after that, where I started continuing. Monsoons, you know, in Bombay are a nightmare, right? People just don't know which road to go, where are the potholes. But then I said that people are engaging around traffic content. This is what I always wanted to do, right? So why don't I build this social traffic app? I already have data coming from. I will figure out the model to some extent of data coming from GPS companies in the mobile app. So. I think those two three things happened, and I was working as I said in the background. I said now the home loan is done. This is the only time for the responsibilities only increase. If you want to start up, do it now or never. So I decided to quit CS finally, and then I started up. So that's how the trigger to happen. I was lucky that I got funding immediately because I had done some work prior to this. So I got a two crore rupee check from the angels, which also further motivated me to say, okay, let's take this leap now. And that's why I took. When you say you had done some work prior to this, what does that mean? When I was working in CL, I used to keep on doing something. I used to keep building the stack. I would code at night, building the traffic information stack, how the map would look like. I would also talk to cab companies on weekends that if they want to send GPS data. So the work that I started with Alok Kumar, I would continue doing that on nights and weekends and holidays for that matter. So there was some scope. I would go and present my solution to a traffic police every now and then. So while, so you can say it was akin to doing two jobs, but I was not earning money on the second job. I was just experimenting and wanting to build traffic information. So I was building the stack in the background and it turned out to be a very good platform. I built it all by myself at that point of time. I, was, I used to code at that time. A couple of cab companies at that time also interested in sharing data with me, which made me a national, national product on day one. So they were cab companies, Easy Cabs, in fact, Mr. Rajiv, which I'm very grateful to him because he was the first one to give me an opportunity. And he said, okay, why don't you take my data? And he was present in five or six cities. I became a five or six city app on day one. So all of these things were failing into place, but just doing it part-time didn't make sense. And that's when I said, just do it full-time and give it one full shot. You know whether it works or doesn't work, but at least you have a shot in life. As Morgan Freeman told that lady in the million dollars, I wanted the shot in life, so I decided, okay, let's do it full-time and figure out how it goes. And what was the product idea that you would aggregate data from cab companies and a couple of other sources and... Yeah, basically GPS, GPS was the... any Anyone who had GPS on the vehicle, would be and the guys would be so if you have a gps but you're moving on the highways or you're not parking having a car is useless to me but the cab companies who would gps in those days the radio taxis as we used to call them right uh, the radio taxis i used to call them they were always moving on they were paid to move on the road so the mirus of the world the easy cabs the mega cabs the tap cabs of the world at that time right so 
we figured out a very smart business model. I said that so Ola was happening at that time, Uber was happening at that time, Mobile Revolution was happening at that time. And uh, but these guys were not tech companies, right? They were not tech companies. And Uber was getting eye popping valuations at that time. So everyone wanted to be Uber. So then I told everyone, all of these cab companies said, I'll build you and build your mobile app and maintain it for free for you, right? And in return you give me your GPS data. So it was a mix of both they didn't know. A mobile app as in the, for the customer to book a cab, that mobile app. Everyone at that time thought just building a mobile app is enough, right? There's a lot more which goes into building an Uber and Ola. But luckily for me, there was uh, people did, were not aware. No one invested in building their own tech teams. None of these guys, which I talk about, except for Meru to some extent, actually invested in building their own tech teams. So all of them were very willing to work with me. And I did a good job, whatever requirement they had. Did I help them grow their business? No, I never signed up for that. Right? I just signed up for being the IT partner and the mobile app partner, which I continued being. I never had I thought I'll grow my business on the back of their data. And that is my tryst. That is where my tryst with cab companies also started. I eventually got acquired by Ola. <laughs> so I had met uh, the Ola CEO of Mahavish also at that time in exchange for data, etc. So that was my first encounter with him. So that's how we started. And that was a scalable model, right? We were getting like 10 million data points a day across India. We were giving traffic information in 15 cities. And this was the time when Google was not giving traffic information. Google Maps were fairly okay. But it, yeah, it, that started much later. You are the first ones. And the engagement and the information on the app was brilliant, right? So today also the Twitter handle that I talk about, only the Mumbai version of the Twitter handle has 3.5 million followers. It's not been updated for the last few years. It grew to 3.5 million organic followers without a single paid follower, right? So you can imagine the scope. The mobile app that we had developed for traffic information was the one of the first in India to get to 100,000 daily active users. But what would the mobile app show? Would it show, could you... Put your destination, get navigation, and then also see traffic, like same as what you see in Google Maps. Yeah, it used to do that exactly, right? So we were using Google Maps as a backend layer, but just a map. The traffic information on top of it was overlaid by us. So we would color the road red, yellow, depending on how the cab would be moving and our interpretation of that. And then we also had data coming in from traffic police sources. So we had people sitting in traffic police control rooms where they have cameras. If an accident or something happened, we would overlay that on top of it if there was a pothole accident. So it was a combination of data coming from GPS, data coming from the traffic control unit, and data coming in from our users because the users were engaging on Twitter, the users were engaging on the app. So users were also report there's an accident here, there's a jam here. Users were also reporting. Okay. Were you also collecting users' GPS data from the mobile phone? What Google Maps does? Yeah, yeah we, Google, we were. And we were not very successful in cracking that because users would not keep it on for a long time because batteries were not at the best at that point. Battery life was not the best, people are afraid. Uber on the, Google, on the other hand, benefited because the Ola drivers and Uber drivers would keep the mobile on all the time. And they would plug into the device, right? So they would get a lot more and they were using Google Maps, not traffic. They would get a lot more data at that point of time than us. Uh, so that is what benefited them as well. So eventually, when we started with a very reliable and secure source of data, Google was data was not good, but over time, because Ula and Uber started using Google data, became more and more reliable and uh, scalable as well. Right? And what was the monetization? Yeah, that is where the company failed. So we could not monitor. So initially, we started selling traffic information as a value added service on telecom operators. Right? So we tied up with Loop Mobile, with Vodafone, if you remember, you used to get SMS alerts. So people would subscribe for traffic. So people would subscribe the one time, you put your source and destination where you would travel on a daily basis. And then 9am in the morning and 6pm in the evening, we would send you traffic information. Right. So these were like 30 rupees a day services, but very low monetization because 70% of the money the telecom operator would keep for themselves. Right? You would only get like 50% after tax, it would be 22% or whatever it is. But at least it got us some monetization going and we had a big base of this right? on Loop Mobile, on Vodafone. We could not crack Airtel at that point of time, but these are the two carriers with which we are working very closely. But what happened in 2013 and there was a crackdown on this whole entire VAS industry. 
right? The entire VAS industry was wrecked down upon by TRAI. And this industry got wiped out overnight, right? So a lot of these guys, ATM, Money on Mobile, all of these guys were making money from VAS, started seeing declining revenues, right? And we were one of the smaller guys. We saw the impact of that. And more clearly, that was not the future to make money. Like, like uh, I believe this was because they, there was mis-selling happening and like customers were not even aware that they were getting charged. Yeah, 70 year old women was subscribed to job alerts, right? Someone who did not want advice would be getting advice. So there was no control on how one would opt in and opt out of a service. And it was at the discretion of the circle level manager or the city manager to figure out who becomes a subscriber and then becomes a subscriber, right? So if you are a good relation with the circle manager, your product does well. And these were integrated. So this and this, we didn't have digital payment, but this was the first form of digital payment, right? Where you are bill is integrated into telecom, and that's what a lot of people capitalize on. So I think mis-selling, crazy fraud, right? Beyond pawn, there was no organic usage of any product to be honest. So that's what I think. And there was a crackdown, and I think rightly so. If you think from the customer perspective, was the crackdown correct? Possibly yes, right? So yeah, this crackdown happened. There was double opt-in, etc. So there was a lot of friction introduced along the way to pick up a web service, and. and this also coincided with smartphones and smartphone apps coming out. So then obviously this industry was on. So we, we lost that monetization model. On the app, we had paid features. Right? So if you want alternate routes, if you want traffic alerts from police, so you would have to pay for that. But then Google started giving all of that up for free, right? So we had to make that free. And the third option we explored is why don't we work with car companies, OEMs, uh, etc. We started working, doing some work with Mapma India, right? which just recently went. I'm very good friends with them for the matter. And they were sourcing traffic information from us. But... No car companies ever launched a connected car in India. So for traffic information, you need connected cars. Static cars work, static maps work on anything, right? So even till date, so we were very hopeful. We did some trials with some big car companies, BMWs, etc. But none of them ended up launching connected cars because they did not find the infrastructure for wireless reliable infrastructure for wireless communication. So in the West, this all happens by FM band. It doesn't happen on 4G or 3G, whatever it is. The FM band was for this was never allocated in India for that matter. And that collected car dream also didn't pan out, right? So then we could not figure out a way to monetize this, like even if it scales, etc. And then you can't do an advertising play because it's a niche audience. Right? There are 20, 15, 20 million households who use cars, right? And then with then that you're fighting a behemoth of Google who has a distribution advantage of Android, who has a supply advantage from Ola Uber. It's going to be very, very difficult. And that is because I always wanted to be a B2B, B2C company at that point of time. Had I at that point reinvented myself and said, no, screw all of this. I want to be a B2B company. Today, we would have been golden, right? Because today, everyone in the world, be it a Zepto, be it a Swiggy, be it a Delivery, be it a Flipkart, all want these maps and reliable information. We could have been that layer, right? So we had some initial conversations with some of the e-commerce companies. But in my mind, I was, as I said, there was, it was a lot of inflexibility in what I want to do. I always want, the charm was that I want to be a B2C company and that to a global company. So that was my wish list at that time. And I didn't pursue this opportunity. This, what you're talking about, the current opportunity, this is what I think a company like Next Billion does, right? Like Next Billion. So Next Billion, like Sola, guys, some of them are like Sola and Gojek, right? So they're building all of it together. They will. Because today, what is happening, also when I was a CTO, there's no viable alternative for maps. Map my India is good now. But a few years back, there was no alternative for maps, right? And uh, Google has a sheer monopoly. If something were to happen to Google Maps, a lot of the businesses that we see today, the Swiggies, the Ola, and all, were to suffer, will be suffering immensely. And so it makes sense. Next billion is doing that. MapMind is also making rapid strides under Rohan to actually get to that layer. So we need, but as I said, we were an early start. If we had made some progress, we had too much data from OpenStreetMaps. So we had data from traffic information. We had a lot of that information going on our place. And then obviously the likes of delivery and all that were coming up at that time. So if we had trained it around, right, and today we would have been a very valuable company. So today the monopoly would, uh, there would have been an alternative for many other players in each other's monopoly. But we didn't. I think that was, it's important to stick to your goals, but I thought, no, we want to be a B2C. You stick to outcomes, then it, that's what becomes, like what happens, right? You stick to outcomes, not to the opportunity. So we decided that 
we are able to drive usage right and usage building good apps uh, working with government getting data unorganized data and converting into usable information is a strength why don't we do the same for public transport because when i was running the mobile app also traflin mobile app, a lot of the queries that used to come for us were for public transport when will my bus come is my especially when trains were late when metros were late etc right when is the train coming when is the metro coming i said and then we looked deeper and said that the public information is also broken there are so many different agencies like delhi metro the delhi transport corporation in delhi in mumbai there's bst there's western railway central railway mumbai metro all of them are operating in their own silos similar to cs right no one talk to each other but i as a user and dependent on their coordination to make sure my journey is a little more seamless and i don't have that friction so why don't we bring all that information together and show it to the user so we take that siloed nature of the or industry away from the user and make you a unified view to them so that's when we started piloted to data and uh, became a public transformation plus a traffic app right that's what well, we thought if you have to monetizing ads or any other way then at least get to a base which is much bigger than what traffline would offer so before that it was not called uh, rideler no rideler was the new incarnation of the app so the idea was that public transport is a riddle right so in india in bombay so there is a bst there is navi mumbai buses there is virar buses buses there is thane buses western railway central railway there is there is mumbai metro right so if it's a riddle right if i want to go from here to washi i'll have to take three four modes of transport how do i solve so i thought it's a riddle right and uh, the one to solve this would be a riddler and nothing to do with batman though this <laughs> nothing to do with the batman villain but uh, riddler was how oh, that's how the idea of riddler came along right and we wanted the learning was also keeping a traffic line makes you very gen very specific to traffic and all that now we are evolving to much bigger traffic plus platform so we wanted a more generic name for the platform rather than something which sticks to that particular initial domain that we target right i always thought there was something to do with ride i always used to pronounce it as rideler <laughs> it was really yeah so the goal was uh, again like a google maps competitor except it also integrates traffic and public transport modes to help you map out how to reach from point a to point b within urban areas yeah. you would only be focused on urban areas there's no point doing this beyond no we did in all cities even in tier 2 cities like uh, mangalore where the bus is dependent on buses so in fact in tier 2 cities like uh, there is only I, the only form of mass transit is buses there is no trains rickshaws are fairly expensive for, right to go from there so it was actually a very popular product in our tier 2 cities as well the problem in tier 2 cities was that the information was not organized structured so the usp that we mastered at that point of time working with agencies working with the transport operators agencies etc and converting that to structured information right? converting that unstructured information to structured information the way google used to work in the west is they would standard data sources from where they would fetch all this information the agencies would do all that work for them in india no one was going to do it for them except for one or two like bangalore or whatever so we, that was a bigger strength that we used to we had mastered the model of working with them and scaling this model across the cities depending on the southern city northern city western city didn't matter we figured out a way with the ground team to figure out how to do that yeah. so say someone in bangalore could map out could query that i want to go here and then the, the, you would get that person's location through their gps and then you would tell them okay there is a bus leaving after 30 minutes from this stop this is the nearest stop the bus will precisely okay same thing which google maps does today so we have built the entire routing engine i forgot the name but it was a multimodal routing engine right so if you have to take two buses three buses if you take a bus and a train combination all of that was available on the app Okay, okay. Though I think probably buses is something which Google Maps doesn't really cover well in India even today. Like in terms of the scheduling, timing, that's very chaotic still. It's not a Google Map problem, as I said. It's a data problem, right? So the data is not structured. Right? If I have to go, I'll tell you the example in Mumbai. There are twenty-seven depots. Every depot manager has his own schedule. So there is a central copy of schedule, but then the real copy is the depot manager. and he's the one who manages it so you have to figure out the right source of data and get those schedules from them 
and he does it on the basis of ground feedback okay there is too much traffic here route a bus there right there is a conductor available here do that so he does it on the basis of uh, ground feedback so you have to fetch the right source of information Google with its technology platform and all not a ground team it's difficult for them to collate in such an unstructured environment did you start earning through ads then no we didn't we didn't so i think an, another interesting thing came up at that time so it was when we started getting so we, this was another app which hit 100000 scale very quickly we launched in cities right so the idea was either doing ads or doing something else but the paytm uber success actually gave us another direction right so paytm and uber had done a partnership and if you remember that was the first inflection point for paytm and paytm went to the next level Yes, and Paytm was the only way to pay digitally on Uber. Huh. No, there was no cash at that time. Uber was not. I think there was no cash. So Paytm was the only way to pay because yeah, either Paytm or credit card, right? Yeah. No, credit card was also not the credit card. They blocked him. They needed two-factor authentication, right? One only we auto deduct was the Paytm. It was a monopoly of sorts. So we said that you can book a red bus, you can book a long-distance ticket on buses on mobile or on website. You can book airline tickets. You can now book a cab. Why is it that public transport, which we are catering to, is not available on your mobile phone? The problems are, are equal, right? I have to stand in line all the time while buying a pass. I have to haggle with the conductor for change. I have to waste so much time. Why shouldn't this be available on mobile? And then you see it's a difficult problem, right? Because you can't just, it's not an API call where you can say, okay, I have reserved a seat. There's no reservation. It's not reserved category. So if I have a printout, I could take 10 Xerox copies of the printout and I'll give it to 10 of my friends and the copy can be... And if I'm going to traveling a metro, how do you verify this? Because no one, though, if you, you scan it, the gate should know, right? This is a repeat copy, whatever. And there was no, no one who was doing this anywhere in the world. And then again, my, the tech part of me, the hardware part of me got curious that actually I can solve this problem. And we were the first ones at Riddler to introduce mobile ticketing for the unreserved category for buses and metro. And that became a very popular product that started... Having GMB, we started having transactions with the platform, GMB through the platform. But tell me how you figured this out. Like Metro, I can understand maybe at the point of entry, the person could use the Riddler app to scan or something. Was that the way? Or Yeah, but how do you know that the scan has been one way, right? If the scan has not repeated, how do you know that the scan should repeat? So that's the difficult part. So very interesting solution and something I'm very proud of. We put Wi-Fi chips inside buses. At the entry of the bus and exit of the bus. Wi-Fi chips have become very cheap, right? There was like 250 rupees a bus. So it doesn't, so even if you have to put in 250,000 bus, 4,000 buses, it's not very expensive. So what happens is when you enter the bus, your mobile app, you turn on the Wi-Fi on your mobile app, right? And the mobile app and the Wi-Fi talk to you, the Wi-Fi chips talk to each other, it activates the ticket. And when you exit the bus, it deactivates the ticket. So the life cycle of the ticket, which is during the beginning of the bus and the end of the bus is the only life cycle the ticket is active, right? And then the ticket disappears from the phone. So that way we ensured that there is no fraud and a ticket cannot a ticket as an identifier. For example, the Wi-Fi which we put inside the buses had an identifier which was correlated to the bus number of that. So if I'm buying a bus number 66, the, the two have to marry it and talk to each other before their ticket can be validated. When the conductor comes, you have to show a validated ticket. The conductor punches the details of the ticket on his machine and the reconciliation happens. So this ticket purchase was made seamless and the reconciliation was made seamless for the agency. So it's not that you have to go to a separate table to look up the reconciliation information. One question on the bus thing first before we come to Metro. You uh, you are expected to buy the ticket before boarding. It's not like you can board and it will deduct from your wallet automatically. Not like that. No, you buy a ticket. So mostly the use case for us was passes, right? Or 20 to 30% of the users were at passes. So you pass, pay for that pass once in a month, once in a week, etc. Or you pay for the beginning of the day. 
and then you just validate your password. You marry the two informations, and then you you can also do tickets, but ticket is cumbersome because every ten rupee transaction you have to go to Paytm, add money, and do that. Right? But the biggest use case for us is passes. So we were the reason people switched from tickets to passes because pass buying in buses is a very tedious experience, and I'll tell you why. Yeah, you have to go to some office and you have to go to a depot, right? Yeah, you can you can board the bus from six thousand different locations, but you can buy a pass only from twenty five, thirty, fifty locations, right? So the disparity is there. Whereas in the case of a train or a metro. The place where you buy the ticket from, the place where you board from, and the place where you buy the bus uh, and the uh, pass from is all the same. Right. Yes. If you like to hear stories of founders, then we have tons of great stories from entrepreneurs who have built billion-dollar businesses. Just search for the Founder Thesis podcast on any audio streaming app like Spotify, Ghana, Apple Podcasts, and subscribe to the show. So tell me the metro solution. What did you do for metro? In metro also, we put a QR code reader inside the gate. So we cut open the gate, that the turnstile that you see, right? And then obviously there was a validation circuit. Now, how does one gate know that all the other, this gentleman has already passed me or this gentleman is supposed to exit? So that's where we have a mesh network that we created at every metro. So metros typically have a fiber network, uh, which is used for communication of the signaling information. We piggyback on top of that fiber network. So if one turnstile sees that Akshay has entered at station A. He informs all the other turnstiles which are relevant that Akshay will be exiting from this particular turnstile. If Akshay exits from one of the turnstiles, he is validated and he is allowed to go through. If you have broken a rule, if you have jumped a gate and you have not entered properly, then it will not allow you to exit. Also. And once Akshay has entered, no other gate will be allowed entry of Akshay also. So we managed. So it was the first actually blockchain implementation. <laughs> Everyone was a ledger. Every turnstile was a ledger, and that ledger had information on all the passengers which had gone in and come out, etc. Right? It worked beautifully, man. It today works. And then China did it. Now a lot of countries in the world are doing it, but very proud. So today, if you see Delhi Metro, Bombay Metro, a lot of the metros now have that mobile ticketing solution, right? It's a win-win for both for customers and for the agency. For the customers, you don't have to stand in line, right? You get everything on the phone. For the agency, you take away the cost cost of that token, the token which gets lost, which gets damaged, etc., etc. And you avoid lines at the metro stations. You can use the real estate to advertise more. So it was one of the solution which. Obviously, benefited a much bigger part of the ecosystem than this asset. And and this was what again you buy a ticket in advance or uh, for pass users or for debit from wallet. So you can buy a ticket. Basically, you have to buy the ticket before you reach the turnstile. So people would buy it on on the way to the metro station, right? The metro station if it's not underground, you have to do that. And uh, you buy your ticket, you open your phone, and just scan on top of the gate, and the gate opens if the ticket is valid. Here there was no pass holder concept, right? I don't think. No, well, there were passes as well. So you could buy a pass. So we had to make funds, and every time you did a transaction, the value from the pass would get detected. So this led to what kind of revenues then? So we got to a four to five million dollar revenue from a zero revenue company. More importantly, we had close to 100 million GMV flowing through the platform, and we used to make money in two ways. One is on a per transaction basis. That every time a ticket used to be bought on the platform, we used to make one or two percent, and then initial installation fees because the hardware. In public transport agencies, especially when it's government funded, there is a big question on who owns the platform, who owns the hardware, and they always wanted to own the hardware right? because that's how there's lack of that's how they are far more accountable. So we used to charge them for the initial deployment, and then as an operational cost, we used to charge them on a per ticket basis. Right? So we did this for BST, we did that for Navi Mumbai, we did this for buses in Gurgaon, all of Punjab State, uh, Delhi Metro, Bombay Metro. A lot of the prominent agencies in India were starting to work with us. So we started with mobile ticketing as a wedge. We got into the foot in the door. Uh, yeah. And then obviously after the whole acquisition, we did a lot more. We started becoming a full stack technology company rather than just ticket, mobile ticketing company. Why did you get acquired? Why didn't you want to continue as an independent company? 
Yeah, so as I told you, my passion, my reason to start this was not business race. It was a personal pain point where I started. Okay, this is a cool system to build, and I started building that out. There was no thought process like we have today, right? Where will the revenue model come from? Where will the margins come from? What is the future? We were always thought, "Ki mehnat karo, life mein," right? And that is the mindset which I started with. Let's start something, and we'll figure out along the way. But that is not how it works in the world today. That's what I've realized. Right? You should be clear on why you want to go to it. Otherwise, it becomes a struggle all throughout. More importantly, I realized that given the margins that we were earning, right, it's never going to be a big business by itself. Right? It will be hundred, two hundred crore business at best. Right? Because even if you do the best technology platform, even if you build, everyone is using your app. On a ten rupee ticket, you can only make twenty paise. You cannot make more than that. And because of government restrictions, political pressure, the socialist nature of some states, the ten rupee will never become hundred rupees. Right? Ideally, economies will demand. At, If you improve the service and all that, the other and the major reason I saw that there was no inclination from any of the government authorities, anyone to actually promote public transport. Right? If that doesn't happen, then public transport is going to die. The only places in the world where public transport companies have done well, exceeded, is where there are restrictions of car usage. The Singapore is a company which comes to mind. In London, you cannot take if there are very high tax on you going to the central part of London. That is what will encourage people to use public transport. If you don't do that, public transport by itself will never make money. And if it doesn't make money, then the losses will essentially keep on plowing, and you stop putting money back in there, which results in a very negative viral loop. And I saw that most parts of India was actually following that, so except for Delhi Metro, which is a price crown. No other public transport agency in the world was being treated in India was actually being treated fairly. In fact, it's the worst. If there is a riot, the first thing we break is a bus, and we are very happy with that. So, if the industry has to grow, and then you have to invest into it, you have to be ready to do it. Right? At the end of the day, bus, auto, taxi, all are competing for space. It's a space problem. It's not a mobility problem. If you don't give them roads to travel, then they will not be able to travel. They will not be able to go. I have gone to buses. I have gone to outside metro stations, outside railway station. The share auto rickshaw drivers block the bus entry. They don't allow the bus to go through, so that people switch to share auto, and that's a local union or a local gunda supporting them. And there's nothing the bus agency can do, right? We've been talking about dedicated lanes for buses for the longest possible time. Delhi tried it also, no? The, which was hated by everybody. The car lobby, right? If the state government relies so much on the petroleum taxation, which comes from petrol, it's impossible that they will promote non-vehicular traffic. Are we possibly going to see a future in the next ten years where public transport is going to be proliferated? And also as a user, right? I saw that users as soon as I was, I had access to data. So I used to look at cohorts of customers, LTV. Most of my users used to churn after a few months. There's nothing I did, but I when I used to call them, I said I don't even take the bus anymore, dude. It's not. I don't have a problem with your app. It's not that the app is bad. It's just that I don't take. I want enough money now to afford a rickshaw or a bike. I've switched to another mode of transport. So. It was a mode of transport which was used by people coming from a village who did not have enough means at that point of time, or was an out of a job, figuring out his life. As soon as they figure out something about life, they move to another mode of transport. So there's no way for me to monetize the customer, right? Then he wouldn't care about Riddler or anything of that sort. I had the fortune of looking at this objectively, the deal, right? Because when you do a deal, it's all on the founder, and I was the decision. My investors were very kind enough to let me make the decision. But I had four offers at that time: two for acquisition and two for funding, and the investment for big companies also. So. It was not that I was forced to make that acquisition. I was forced to sell out the company. I could do it on almost the terms that I wanted, and I could also weigh the pros and cons of this with a future in mind. That you've already done it for six, seven years, and you want to keep doing it because you've done it, or or you want to actually think you have to eventually give an exit to investors. You have to make sure employees are liquidated. How much had you raised by then at this time? We had raised around nine, eight, yeah, eight to nine million dollars, something around that ballpark. Okay, okay. Like Series A, Series B, I guess. So we raised up to Series B. And then when I was out in the market to look for Series C, is when the acquisition offer came along. So the idea was not to get acquired. The idea was to look for Series C funding. So the idea was that this was the time, right time, and I didn't exit. I just said that this didn't exist for investors. I continued building Riddler for the next three years along with Oda, and Riddler did grow during that time as well, right? So the idea was not to look at it and exit, but the idea was to make sure that it makes starting business sense. 
So, what was Ola's proposal? Like, where would Riddler reside within Ola? So, it was Riddler. So, Ola was very kind enough to always let Riddler operate independently. Obviously, the business had to start making sense. We could not do projects to satisfy, to just get numbers for the heck of getting numbers. Right? So, that was the only alignment which Ola got us done. So, we, for the first, for the most part of Riddler's existence, Riddler did operate, continue to operate out of Bombay. Right? While Ola was based in Bangalore, there was never any push. Right? The only thing we had to go for Bangalore was budget approval. So, if we thought there was a project which was viable, we should uh, what Ola made possible for us was, uh, first of all, we got a strong balance sheet. So now we could start bidding for bigger projects. Typically, projects in buses were like, you have to invest in the CAPEX and you require the money over a five-year, six-year period. We as a startup never had that kind of uh, money. But Ola with its bank balance, Ola with its balance sheet and bank connects was able to help us get that kind of network. And the other was Ola had a sales team across the country. Right? So we had to talk to bus operator in Punjab who was not reachable. Ola sales team would essentially help. So we used those two things of Ola. And obviously, learning the business part of it. So... The proposals used to, we used to wait it. So we used to obviously say this is the amount of spend and this is what we'll make at the end of it. There were financial targets and we tried to meet both of them. But it was uh, very grateful of them not to interview, interfere in the day-to-day operation. I could not continue in Ola, Riddler for a long time because I was asked to take a bigger role at Ola. But Riddler continued to operate independently during that time. What projects did Riddler do? It continued to do the same thing only? No, we actually became a full-stack ticketing company. Right? So we started as a mobile ticketing company. and Then we got acquired by Ola. We were only doing mobile ticketing for transport agencies. But then... Uh, we say, why not do the entire thing, right? So even paper ticketing, card ticketing, credit card ticketing. So the entire ticketing stack. So first we were integrating on top of a system integrator and just providing the mobile layer. Then we went deep in the stack and started doing that. So this would be a SaaS or this would be a, like what was the model here? Like a one-time charge and then a percentage of sale price or what? Yeah, so it depends on agencies. So in the case of metros, which I would treat as enterprises, Delhi metros, they had a lot of money. So that would be a capex plus opex right they had all the money to give governments always funded their metros they always had extra money then they needed so they would and they had the swagger as well to buy out a project we won't work with anyone we want it our way right so they would buy out a project and then give us capex plus opex buses on the government side wanted things but they did not have the money to invest in capex but they had recurring operational revenue so then become the you invest operationally you invest one time and then you recover the money over time and the third was the smb which i call private operators in the country there's a lot of most of the states many states in india don't have public transport or government transport. So, they private operators run. So, they are like a fleet of 7-8 buses, 5-7 buses. So, they were like SMB for us. So, we would give the hardware and software to them. No CAPEX, only OPEX. But we ensure that they are serviced end-to-end. What would happen typically before us is people would go sell hardware to them and disappear. And their CAPEX would just be sitting out there, right? So, we would say that you don't have to worry about anything. Nor the software, nor the hardware. It will all reside on the cloud. We'll have service engineers who will come and service if your hardware goes bad. But then you do it. So, so it was three different models depending on the nature of the industry. The last time I was in a bus was probably 2003, 2004 when ticketing was the conductor tearing out a piece of paper. So how is it, how does digital ticketing happen in buses now? Uh, this I'm talking of the lo- local buses, not intercity. Even intercity, uh, unreserved ticketing happens that way. So they have handheld devices now. They have handheld devices, which are a mini computer of sorts. And uh, where there is preset information about the routes, fares, etc, etc. Right? The first generation of handheld devices came offline. So you did not. So basically, when a conductor wants to issue a ticket, you enter the source destination, they have been taught the interface and they enter the numbers and the ticket get printed. The fare is mentioned in that. You take the ticket and uh, print it out. And then at the end of the day, you go to the depot, you plug in the device into the machine or uh, laptop and the information gets downloaded and that's how the reconciliation happens. Then the next generation which came, which started supporting online ticketing as well because there was a big push to use debit card, which I'm using anywhere, to start using on the buses. So we were the first ones to introduce debit card-based ticketing in Delhi Metro. So you could use the debit card offline as well as online. So then they become online terminals. Uh, where there's a SIM card, uh, secure, obviously secure SIM card with uh, PCIDSS certification. And then when you tap on it, money gets deducted and the data gets goes to the bank as well as to the fare collection server as well. 
So they still have handheld devices. The device, the handheld device, so you were providing that also. Yeah, we are providing it. So we are working with the local manufacturer. So earlier when there was no credit card ticketing, that was a custom-made device. So we made a custom-made device which had high battery life, very high battery life, easy to operate, big buttons so that the person could bend, enter, etc. The place where you tap the card is a very, we had a very big battery rate, 3600 milliampere. So it would last for like 13, uh, 16, 18 hours without the conduct having to worry about discharge. A very thick paper roll, so it doesn't have to keep on replacing that. So that was a custom device that we made. Then the government push came for this whole NCMC cartridge, the National Card Mobility Cartridge, one card for all transport modes in the world. Then we switched to a very phone, standard device, because those devices then needed certification compliance because they were handling magnets, right? So then we stopped doing the hardware ourselves and we started buying them all the shelves and writing our software on top of it, right? Which was, uh, and then the backend software remained the same. So some cities, most, so even today, 90% of the cities would use that custom hardware that I'm talking about. 10% of the cities are now using that very phone or that fancy device, right? And there we had to do a lot of work on the software. Because the device is smaller, the battery is smaller. So how do you optimize software that, especially on the power consumption side, so that your battery doesn't run out? If the problem still remains the same. You have to do an eight-hour shift and the battery should not drain. The printer is very small. So those are some of the... Ch- so we had to fight a much more software challenge on those devices than a hardware challenge. Is this a reality, this MCMC, this National Mobility Card? Not. It's not the reality of scale, but it works. So if you go to Delhi Metro Airport line today, you can tap it and tap out using your... NCMC debit card and you can use it to direct money directly from the bank. You won't have to stand in line. Oh, wow. And what, ICI and all issue this card? All the banks issue this? All the banks. So, we, yeah, that was the first. So, Riddler was the one who implemented this in Delhi Metro. And uh, the Prime Minister, Dr. Mr. Narendra Modi, inaugurated this. This was December 2020, 2020 I think. Yeah, at that time. So, this was the first. Okay. And this is that card which has that touch. Wala... Yeah, that Wi-Fi. They call it Wi-Fi, but it's a chip which is there, right? It has... It's a, it's a chip. It's a rupee card. It only works in rupee. Like an NFC, probably it's NFC technology. It has an NFC chip. So it's NFC. It's based on NFC only. And then there is security, which is security data, which is provided in NPCI. Right? So you need to have a certain level of security. The device has to be certified. Um, and then the key exchange happens between the card and the device. And that's how the authentication happens. But you see this becoming like you have a debit card, which you can just tap on it. Because transport is a state subject. So each state will... No, it's, I think it's not that. No? You are not allowed to auto debit from the bank account, right? So what happens is you, if you want to do an online transaction, again the problem of delay, right? So th- you can either do not. So today it works is offline. So there is you to go to a, it's like a pass. You go to a ticket counter, give that guy hundred rupees, two hundred rupees. He tops up your card for hundred, two hundred rupees, right? Essentially, it does that. It's not linked to a bank account because if you link to a bank account and if you tap at the entry gate. Then the amount of time it takes to go to the bank server, find out if you have enough balance and come back, you have to pass one user in one second, right? In a bus, imagine it uses the local storage of the machine uh, to do that. That means you have to keep on topping it up all the time. Now, the other way is that if you don't have, then you have to base it on trust. Uh, and this is where India is stuck, right? We don't have trust. So, okay, you can say, okay, I'll go to a bank and get it. But if your bank does not have it, it'll blacklist you. But there's a one right risk. There's a one right risk because I can do one right without, I can do no one in the country was willing to take a one-ride risk. Neither the transport agency, nor the government, nor the banks. But then who takes this one-ride risk? If no one takes a one-ride risk, then you need a foolproof system. If you need a foolproof system, you compromise on user experience. If you compromise on user experience, you will not be able to use it. But this would be pretty revolutionary if you have a debit card that you can just tap and ride anywhere in the country. It works in London. It works. And the transport for London takes uh, the risk of the first ride. And obviously, people are more trustworthy there. Uh, right? Uh, credit goes are impacted. So I think... It means an underlying problem of solves underlying problem of trust. If you solve trust, then the user experience as is revolutionary. Why can't it happen? It should happen. But this is where the problems I see. And what happens? The transport agency he says, hey, why should I take the risk? It's a bank who's benefiting by distributing the cards. 
the bank says that it's not my job to implement security it's your job to implement security right? so there is a pull and push and no one's taking ownership so who's taking the ownership of deploying these cards transport agencies have been mandated that you do this card but they don't have any pull they think that if i do this the bank's benefit i don't even get the benefit out of this so the model for this has not been established very clearly and if you establish model where both parties benefit because of this then it makes sense today it's not it's a push and pull so one guy is pushing the banks are pushing because they have the cloud they have the support from the government and these guys are coming up with all possible excuses to possibly not do it as well so banks are pushing because they'll earn the some sort of intercharge interchange rate they are yeah they are if the credit card is distributed debit card get distributed it's good money for them right so low very low so they know transport is a captive audience and if they do that then it's they get a very big base then that guy uses credit card as a pay so in in hong kong this is how it works right oyster is a i think the car, octopus 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 oyster in london octopus is in hong kong so in octopus uh, you can use it so transit is the way to acquire users but then the same octopus card you can go and tap on other stores and then they make the mdr from there now the tra- bank agency are not willing to share the mdr with the transport agencies right so then how would they like there's no participation from them then why would i even distribute this card but, but this octopus card is a prepaid instrument or is linked to a bank like it was a prepaid inst- i don't know if obviously i've not been following this for last few years but it was a prepaid instrument back in the days when they started up but now i'm sure they must have linked it to the bank yeah okay okay so you have to load it with money okay yeah japan has something similar you load it with money then you can use it at vending machines and so you will enable the loading infrastructure if you get money you can't get money from transport alone it's a very low ticket put it in enabler to commerce but if you can make money from commerce and then bank should be willing to share that with their transport agency then the transport agency will be very happy that's not happening so what happens is both price try to squeeze other to get the best bargain and then no one is looking at user experience of promoting this product in a big way so i don't think it's a technology problem it's more of what is the right business model for this and until that is figured out i don't think this technology scales right yeah yeah that's an interesting insight that transport as an enabler of commerce which is what i think ircctc also did right like for online commerce i used to live in that i was part of redla as part of ola and we used to take people to work we used to take people to restaurants we used to take people to shopping malls but we never made money from those places if you are if i was a website traffic if i was a website referral company where i am referring people to flipkart i am referring people to swiggy they always give me 6-7% commission right but if i am taking trans- people to buses places etc uh, i never get money right so you think of what happened in gurgaon right uh, dlf metro was the one who actually dlf was the one who built out the metro when you build out the metro the price of the property goes up you make money out of that and then you abandon the metro for some sort right so it benefits a lot of agencies even to see more railways extended to viran and all the other. price of properties has just gone up right but what is the benefit to railways nothing that's how london has actually made transport sustainable right? they get land usage fees so if they build the metro somewhere they get money from there a billion dollar something as a royalty for actually increasing the prices increasing commerce in those places so when i'm doing that's the only way to make supportable transport and none of these things are happening in india right either you put restrictions and promote people to use it or you give them some incentive if those things are not happening in india it's very difficult for transport to sustain by itself is is the theory as to why i decided to pursue the ola opportunity because i don't see this thing i didn't see these things happening in them in the near term so you joined like from riddler you got like an internal movement to ola as the cto actually you call it internal movement or you call it there was a need for me to come in and then i was it was thankful to the management ruler they they thought i was worthy of taking up the cto role and yeah i decided to take the role so i became the overnight i became from a ceo who not who had a cto so become a cto of a big company right? yeah, and what was your role there yeah i started off as a cto which obviously was to streamline tech delivery align it more with business but very soon i became a cpto which is chief product and tech officer and 6 months down my regime also become i was very amongst the ola entire ola mobility stack i was most fascinated by the allocation piece and the pricing piece 
which is what the heart of the system is, which cap calculator to which percent and what should be the pricing. I did most of my work there. And because I had drop insights, I also became the revenue officer, uh, chief revenue, uh, head of revenue, right? Deciding how much incentive to give out, who, which users to get discount, which ones to not get discount, uh, what should be the pricing for particular routes. Uh, so I decided the PNL. So in nine months, I became head of tech product and also revenue during that time. So th- this was essentially like a big data problem, allocation, pricing. No, it's such a behavioral problem more than anything. Behavioral and human insights problem. You want to understand why the driver would accept or reject a ride and what would trigger him to accept her or trigger him or her to accept a ride or reject a ride. Why would a customer choose your platform over the competitor platform? Because at the end of the day, they are the same. Or We have to understand this. And obviously, we had data science teams to actually solve the big data. So the good part about me for Ola was I could actually solve the business problems because the infrastructure work was done, right? So we had a very good tech platform, which is one of the best in the country. Rather. And a lot of work was done on that. So my job was not actually building that out. My job was to utilize that to maximize growth, maximize revenue, maximize uh, margins. I was fortunate that I didn't have to build out many things from scratch, except for maybe on the fraud side. Because fraud was something which was picking up and I had to, we didn't have things in place. So we had to build those ground up. But most of the other things were there for me. Fraud by drivers or by passengers? Everyone, right? driver, customers, network, everything is fraud. So was because we didn't have much there. So we had to build that up ground up. But other than that, most of the things were ready, right? It was a very old, obviously it was a seven-year-old, eight-year-old company by then. And they had built a lot of tech capabilities. So my job was to stitch all of it together. So the, the problem was, it, they had built a lot of stuff. It was all joining it together and presenting a unified view was where my strength lied. And that is what the opportunity for me was. At and were you there when the, the plan for IPO and all that happened? Yeah, that's been happening. I was there and I joined Ola when the international expansion was big. right? And But I was also there when COVID happened, which impacted the business in a big way. So both the cases. So we launched London where we had a very one of the most amazing launches. We took away 15-20% market share in a matter of few days, weeks. And then we are doing really well. We are doing well in India as well. We are growing. And then COVID happened, right? Which put breaks on the business to some extent. And obviously, the IPO will get impacted. So the IPO has been in the works. I was not closely involved in that. But my unfortunate part is that my tenure also coincided with COVID where the business was one of the most impacted businesses, right? Uh, mobility was like people were asked to stay home, not move. So everything I knew in the last 10 years about helping people move down the train because people are asked not to move anymore. So it was very difficult. One of the most difficult times of my career where we saw all the graphs from millions of rights, so many rights going down to zero, right? All of them actually ended up going to zero. So yeah, it was, and, and then reviving that business after COVID was one of my biggest responsibilities and one of the most exciting things I've done. What was the revive would happen? Uh, the reviving would happen automatically, right? Like once the lockdown is lifted. Not necessarily, right? So drivers have gone back to villages. Drivers are fearful of uh, taking passengers along. Passengers are fearful of riding in the cabs. We don't know, right? That time we didn't even know about surface transmission. We didn't even know. So working, giving them sanitization after every trip, tying up for sanitization, getting drivers. The customer base had completely changed, right? The guys, the IT workers who were who were our primary base, like the ones who would go to offices, were not going to offices. But the ones who we know, the new base was the ones who were going to buses, taking buses and rickshaws and public transport was deemed unsafe at that time, but the ones who were uh, outstation at the top, it was only focused on cities, so how do you take care of this? So the dynamics of the business has changed fundamentally. The good thing which worked in our favor was that there was less traffic on the road. Uh, if there was less traffic on the road, then you can do more trips uh, and then you can do uh, more. But also at the same time, the gas prices went from, petrol prices went from 75 to 90, 110, right? So that was another thing. we did. So a lot of things changed, right? balancing all of that. And then obviously, we have the threat of Uber always looking around as to what they are up to. So considering that, no. And then every city opens in a very sporadic manner with some restrictions. So how do you comply with the restrictions at the same time, not jeopardize your health? So there's a hot zone. Uh, where there's a lot of COVID cases. You want to go to driver there, you want to pick up. So you identify, okay, you don't go inside here, but if your passenger wants to go there, you pick up at this point. 
lot of then cash days became prominent because we were even exchange we were worried about exchanging cash at that point of time a good chunk of our business was cash businesses uh, auto rickshaws were deemed safe so we figured out an entire portal we figured out an entire onboarding of auto rickshaws where auto rickshaw drivers could onboard themselves without having to visit an ola center because auto rickshaws were considered open right so again we no one knew much about covid after the first lockdown it was all there was so much myth when food delivery was considered unsafe things obviously got went back to normal once which uh, started going but when we uh, so we had put sprayers inside cabs which automatically sprayed disinfect the cab the drivers were cleaning them There were shields across, so there were a lot of things which were done. Instructions, authentication of drivers wearing a mask or not. A lot of these things had to be done to actually put people didn't trust shared mobility at that time either, and people didn't need to travel. It was discretionary, right? It was not mandatory. It was not important that I have. And so, how do you get back people to cabs? Even drivers had gone back to villages. Drivers were afraid. So whenever there's a hotspot in an area, the drivers would be scared that should I go here, should I not go here? So a lot of these things. So we had to fight all of all these battles. The only thing I did in my favor at that time was that the traffic on the roads were low. which made the experience far more easy so so you would have probably had to change the app also to emphasize on hygiene a lot more and build that customer trust around hygiene yeah changing app around hotspots also if there is a hotspot then if the cab request comes from there how to handle that that part of it then hygiene was more of an information piece but essentially communication around the hotspot when to go and when to go driver cancelling because of a perceived threat of a hotspot Right. And there were all these rumors flying around because the drivers would not show up on a particular day. Then communicating that offline that it's safe. This is how it happened. So a lot of work around the app. Also around the app, you have to obviously show the mask bit, compliance bit, etc., uh, etc. Et that people are mask. We had started us. We had started up a sanitization drive. So we were tied up with uh, one of the petrol companies, and cabs were expected to go there every one day, two days, etc., to make sure that they get themselves sanitized. They're not then blocking them, not letting them demo rides. So a lot of these things had to be built around. building the not only perception but actual safety of the vehicles and the safety of the cars i i have this very outsider perspective on ola that it does a lot of experiments which don't really scale like i, I don't know if the fintech business of ola or food delivery or now i was also reading about fast grocery that zepto and blinkit like going up against them but do you think that is the case that that there are they they're not focused on just the core business they they get into too many other lines or i think it's on the contrary rather the core business in india if you look at the what is the core business it's the core business is mobility in india they are the close to number one player for the most time it's a profitable business is unit positive it's ebitda positive right it's got into a state now it might not be growing due to severe reasons right as i said people the industry is not growing by itself it's not a role is not growing right number of people traveling the roads are not growing so Uh, you have to experiment and get to new lines of business right which is using your core capabilities now that's a strategy call whether you do delivery or you do financial that's a strategy call but i personally believe one has to do that right if you don't do that then you will stall right and whatever i've read about economy whatever i've read about money it's always the one or two experiments you do which stick seven or eight will potentially fail right for most companies we obviously don't hear about the ones which fail a lot but we hear about the ones which succeed right the difference between ola can ola what ola does differently they don't throw money at the problem. so i don't know if you consider the other names that you mentioned as successful because none of them have shown profits or profits or sustainability yet uh, they are all in cash burn huh? yeah so then if you consider that success then yeah we have not succeeded in burning more cash right we can say that. but once they become successful in ola is not same with fintech right what do you say so fintech business from what i understand is a very good business but other fintech company have they really made money uh, i'm not sure about that yet so i don't know the definition of success but If you want to, if the success, definitely success, keep throwing money up, like continuously money. You know, the the point we saw at Ola was that when the thing was Riddler was right, so we could have done mobile ticketing and won all over India. 
we could have but then how much money we would have made right? if i could get to move the needle for all that so the idea was that you build business in a sustainable in a manner and there are opportunities it's not like all the problems in the world are solved so like credit cards one of the first ones on the financial side is so we started the bnpl so what we call bnpl raised today ola money postpaid those are things which happened much earlier than other places so when i decided obviously because in 2020 that i decided i'll move on i moved out in 2021 at that time it was a very uncertain world right today you seeing certainty but there is so much uncertainty now with the other parameters like the war is going on then there is a fed hike there is liquidity crunch so i didn't want to go through that uncertainty period especially this year if things were to not work out in mobility not for the reasons anything ola was doing but just the macro environment changes and where would i go after at the age of 44 45 then i don't know the motivation to start again would be still there and go through a 10 year grind i thought this was my time and i found a good problem statement to solve and might as well jump in so h- how did you discover uh, the problem yeah so as i told you that i always wanted to be cricketer but that didn't doesn't mean i gave up on sports or cricket uh, so i i played my fair share of cricket and sports growing up i represented my school university even in the us when i lived for 6 years i took to cricket very well so i was i used to represent my city of san diego right and i'm still a very big lakers fan and a San Diego Chargers fan. I still follow it even 12 years after moving out of the US. So being a sportsman and obviously being an outdoors guy, always had my fair share of niggles. Right? I've always injured some part of it. In San in US, we used to play during the summer, so we had a long season. If I used to injure myself, I would just video call my sister, who's one of the best sports physicians in India. That is the problem I'm having. And she used to ask me to touch some body part, bridge, get this done, etc. And I would do those things, icing, few exercises. The next week, I would be ready to roll again. Right? So. always wondered that why is this kind of care not available to everyone but that was the starting but that was always the back of my mind I never really pursued that uh, it was solving my problem and the beginning of the pandemic obviously we were all working home so again got in touch with my sister and she was also in she was struggling a lot to manage her practice like it was a big transition from the offline world to the online world seeing patients on zoom was she used to run a clinic and people would come she would make them exercise get them sort of assessed touch them understand what is going wrong and uh, the paradigm is changing and it became very stressful for her not only the treatment part of it but the, even the management part of it right? getting on zooms uh, taking appointments of practice getting on a zoom call taking notes when doing the zoom call then obviously entering them in an excel they're sending them exercises on youtube getting information from their whatsapp patients are complaining that they are not able to do the exercise or do another zoom call so you imagine it's harakari right it's horrible and that's when i gave her a brilliant idea so at redler we had done a very interesting project on passenger counting operators typically had no trust in their conductor that they were collecting the right fare so using the cameras we could count the number of passengers going in and out to 95% accuracy so i told her that i'll build a computer vision module for you you upload your exercises on that one content will automatically go to your users even the exercising they will do this in front of the laptop and then you will get a report right you don't have to get you know 100 calls with them to ask them whether doing and if the report is not in line with what they say then you get a call with them so it just reduces your workload yeah, but the report will show what like whether the so whether they're doing the exercise right or and how much they're doing it right so any physiotherapy exercise any exercise which involves movement of science has two things the quantum that is the repetitions the number of sets repetitions etc and the form of whether my form am angles correct alignment body if you don't do it correctly you not only risk a chance of not recovering but you also risk a chance of injuring yourself so the form is very crucial right and people when they're not able to so people not recovering but they don't realize they're not doing the form correctly so she can monitor all of it remotely right because she cannot go to everyone's home everyone now cannot come to clinic to exercise with her but is computer vision is it advanced enough to judge form like so computer vision cannot judge form accurately it can judge form accurately in many cases but you have to do two things you have to there are two parts of the problem one is you detect the body movements i detect where my hand is at every point of time in every frame and then i can interpret that to understand the form i can use that data to interpret the form i don't need the computer vision part to interpret the form for me 
form interpretation is subjective, but you can teach the machine what the right form is. Right? But you can have logic. Once you have the data, and this is how my hand is moving. So, my hand, so if I'm moving my hand this way, I know it's moving very slow. If I'm moving this way, I know very fast. If I track my hand, and see how long it will take me to make that wave. I can actually see it's moving fast now. So you can write data science's algorithms on top of the body part detection to actually figure out whether it's working. So key body part detection is very accurate, right? So what happens, machine learning, my view of machine learning is that to do generic stuff, it's very accurate. You train the model to do generic stuff. When you ask him to do special cases, when you ask them to handle negative cases, that's when the machine learning model falls. For example, autonomous cars. What is a negative case? I'll tell you, right? Autonomous cars work very well in a closed community group where the number of outlier events can be very minimal. So you can train the model to handle the outlier event. Right? Can a truck barge into a road? No. Can someone come the opposite way? No. When you take the same autonomous car on the main roads and the highways, it takes 15, 20 years because you can't train the model for every scenario. It's a learning, it's, it's not a discovery model, right? So can you train the model that a car can actually barge into a lane? You have to actually encounter, you have to find a lot of data and train that model, right? So, so many things could possibly go wrong where the human brain is asked to react and do that. But in a community where it's a, so when I say it's negative cases, means something that will go wrong. You train the model, right? Even if this situation happens, you have to present the context to the machine and tell this context to them. That's how you turn the brain away. Unless you know all the context in the world, you cannot train the machine. Even if you know all the context in the world, how do you get all the data to train the machine? So in the case of computer vision, for me to, can my, will my shoulders and my nose be different? No. Uh, okay, there will be color complexion problem, there will be dark problems, etc. But beyond the point, they will be finite. But if the way I do an abduction, I bend this way, someone else might bend this way. Those are cases which I cannot interpret because that depends on human behavior. So you don't want to get into that kind of thing. So you, you split the problem into two parts. You split the problem. And I think that's why you see companies like Voyage and all that who are deploying autonomous car in close proximities in a controlled environment, they're far more successful than the ones which are on the roads today. Uh, even the best of companies are not being right. So that's how I mean by negative cases that you cannot train for every possible scenario. When you cannot train for every possible scenario, you cannot have it completely automated. So we've divided the problem into two parts. Now that we've, I've been doing it for the last year, but the idea that I'm coming back to this to uh, how I came. So I told her then, and she said, please don't do this to me. I'm already using these four or five different pieces of software, tools, etc., which don't talk to each other. Half my time spending integrating all of this, right? And you're giving me two more tools. And that's why I realized that why is this the case? Like when I'm running Ola as a marketplace, there's a driver, there's a customer, there's a marketplace, there's pricing, there's government. All of them is operating seamlessly, you know? When a driver comes on board, I see if the license is valid, then I give him a cab, the driver he goes to their destination. It's all seamless. So why is all this not stitched together? And then I see that there's a big opportunity in stitching all of this. So after I have... After I heard, explain, I look at a lot of, spoke to a lot of clinics in India, right? So my inclination for obviously physical rehab, uh, sports and all that. And then all the clinics offered this, right? They were using four or five different pieces of software. In fact, some, one of the soft clinics in Delhi I spoke to was using Asana to handle the pro, pro patient. So they could hand over patient from one. So every patient was a project, right? And then this project management. Through her contacts, I spoke to physicians in South Africa, US, uh, UK also. My contacts are reached out And everywhere common theme that six or seven different pieces of software. All not talking, a lot of administrative work. US, the problem is far more complex because uh, it's billing. It's working with insurance company, right? So who stitches all of this together? And then you look on the patient side. My mom was suffering. We ha- She was due for a new injury at that time, a knee replacement at that time, right? And we could not get it done. We had to delay it by one day because there was no, physic- no operations, no physical therapy, uh, no replacements happening because of COVID. And then physical therapist would also not come home, right? So she had to do it all by herself. But why does she? So how do we give her, make care accessible to her the way I had accessible to me when I was injured, right? So when you marry the two, Seems like a big opportunity. I was very sure that the next business I build has to grow the industry, right? So there are two parts businesses. So when where you people want that service, but because there's so much friction, they're not. So the examples I use is Slipkart, Swiggy, Ola, for that matter. We always wanted cabs to come to it because they could not, right? That's what Ola unlocked. We always wanted food from outside, but there was no broken. 
So physical therapy is one of them. There are 2.5 million who get impacted every year. Only half a million to billion end up availing some service to actually fix themselves. And also among the 1 million who actually end up using it, 70% drop off midway through the treatment because it's cumbersome to the clinic, standard line, or some pain I do that. And the number of people who are going to be suffering from pain is only going to increase because the lifestyles are getting more and more sedentary. The population is aging. So this, so if I reduce the friction all along the way, right from the end, the patient discovers therapist comes to the clinic, the entire onboarding, there are lots of friction pieces along the way. The appointment piece, the intake piece, uh, documentation piece. And then the obvious 90% of the rehab is happening outside the clinic when I'm doing it in isolation alone. And I can streamline all of this delivery then the friction reduces and my scope to actually make the industry much bigger just goes up. Right? So that is what attracted me to the problem. The other thing is, can the margins be better? So yes, in physical therapy, and that's why we decided to work in the US first and, and not as much in India, because in US people spend on physical therapy. It's reimbursed by insurance. It is a cultural problem. If I have pain, I'm not going to call my friend or my brother to actually come and support me. Right? I'll love to get rid of it. Uh, you, you can't ask your kid to do malish. So we said, and then now that's changing in India too, right? India, the people are getting knee replacements done. People are okay to limp around. People want better quality. Now I have seen today, I was happy. ICICI Lombard started replacing, reimbursing 12 physiotherapy sessions. So that mental wellness. So I think that this industry will grow and this needs a better software, right? So there are two things which are different about this industry and there's no software catering to that. One is, it's a referral-based business. It's not a standalone business. You get patients from an ortho, you get patients from a neuro, you get patients from a... All these things are happening off facts even in the US today. Facts of paper, handwritten notes. So how do you streamline that referral? Second is the patient-doctor interaction here goes on for weeks or months or years. Unlike, okay, you get a medicine and you just take a medicine and your interaction is over. You get a surgery, your surgery is done and I don't have much to do with you, right? Then you can do it. You have the interaction because you have to go through a rehab process and who is managing their pipeline or the interaction between that, who is making it seamless for them to integrate. And the third is every treatment is personalized. It's not like you take a dolo or you take a crocine and you'll be done, right? It always depends on what your past was and what your goals are. So if I want to be an athlete, I have a different regimen. If I want to be a delivery boy, I want to be a warehouse worker, I have to be a different regimen. And obviously it depends on my past context as well, right? I can't be starting this. It has personalized it. So when there are so many complexities needed and the world is going to be suffering from a lot of pain, how do you make it possible? So I don't want to get in the digital clinic. I don't want to so I want to enable the physiotherapists, the rehab, the strength and conditioning coaches to streamline the entire care delivery, increase the lifetime value of the patients. Right. And then on the patient side, I think that I'm doing all of this in isolation, which is not fun. Right. No one is a rehab partner. You would have heard of a spotter of a gyms or a running partner. You've not heard of a rehab partner. Uh, so who is handholding me through the entire journey? And I should feel connected, giving me feedback. Like when you do a blood sugar. If you're going through a diabetes reversal program, you can measure blood sugar and see your blood is uh, sugar is dipping. Or if you're going through a weight loss program, you know your weight is under control. There's no such metric in uh, mobility, right? The only thing is whether I have pain or don't have pain. Like how do I know my range has improved, my flexibility has improved? So you need to give that object. And when you give users objective feedback, they will act on it, right? Because it's in their interest. So that's what seems like the opportunity, big opportunity as you see, right? It's a number of people getting impacted. As I said, 2.5 billion people in the world are impacted. US spends close to a trillion dollars on musculoskeletal loss of productivity and actual cost both the big industry potential to transform the industry right increase the industry and then therefore make more margins and then you're part of the care delivery so you as i said in i was not part of the outcome right the bus was bad i could not but here if you recover or not i'm equally responsible along with the doctor i'm monitoring you i'm reporting back so then you there's a potential of making good money as well right along the way so those are the things that attracted me to the opportunity Somehow mobility appeals to me all the time. So yeah, this is what I just thought it's a great problem. So obviously I spoke about, I spoke to the management role, I saw the seven-month notice period and then move on. But yeah, this ex- opportunity excited me and I and it's still a continues to excite me. I didn't wait for a single day. I think I left on March 31st and 1st April I was full-time on this. Right? Yeah. Are you monetizing per transaction basis or are you 
selling as a SaaS as monthly subscription. So we are SaaS service. We're selling a SaaS service. So there are two parts, at least in the US. One is a subscription. So there are two parts of this platform. One is a practice management piece, and the third, and the second is a payment handling piece, billing piece. The practice management piece is per month, per per therapist, per month, etc. Is what we charge. Then the billing piece, how much money you get from the insurance company on behalf of the doctor, you take a percentage of that's a usage based fee, right? So in January, February, we won't make too much revenue because people have just reset the insurance plan and they don't want to use their deductibles and all that. So then, but towards the end of November, December, people are exhausted. You are reaching the end of the insurance plan, you want to use it. So that will depend on the usage. There's a third which we're developing, which is monitoring the lab person and remotely and all that. So that's a that's going to be a user based plan. Every user that we see, yeah. but that's something we're still in the early days. We have to still get clinic. As you said, in healthcare, the initial cycles are slow, right? You have to get clinical validations of these. You have to publish research papers that this actually works, and then you can start monetizing them. So we are away from monetizing that part of it, but we've started monetizing the practice management piece and the billing and the insurance piece of it. So the practice management piece would give them a starting from a like a lead gen form or a landing page where patients can fill an inquiry. Then a yeah. So how do you? So what is happening in physical therapy is that direct access of patients is increasing. So earlier. Six, seven years back, you always needed a referral to actually go to physical therapist. Now that's not the case. The younger ones are more aware. They go directly. If you see someone like a Kohli, right, who has his own therapist, Rohan Topan has his own therapist. Yeah. So you Google it and it's one of the highest search keywords. So how do you streamline that inflow? Then also referral is 70% of the traffic. So how do you streamline that inflow? Then the whole appointment management piece, right? So there are multiple therapists in office. How do you manage appointment? As part of appointment, the digital intake is done. You send the form, you ask them the goals, the problem statements. So when you come to the clinic, the doctor then wastes 47 minutes doing that. In US, we also check for the eligibility of the patient. How much you're eligible, not only for insurance, and also PT-specific eligibility. Right? There are restrictions on physical therapy depending on the insurance plan that you have. Then the entire documentation piece of it. Uh, how do you document the journey, the progress, the deterioration over time? And we made it very objective. We made a form in such a way that there's no need to type for the doctor. It's all click-based. We digitize every workflow. Then there's analytics as to how much time is it taking for people to recover? What are the things which are working? There's an engagement platform for the doctor. The doctor, when they're doing... When the, whenever the patient is doing something at home, how do the doctor know? So there's a dashboard for the doctor. And then there's a billing in which, obviously, that's where the practice management piece of it comes. And the billing piece is where we've integrated with insurance companies. As soon as the, the notes are done, we submit it to the insurance company. If there are any corrections needed, we correct them. We get the money from the insurance company, we deposit to the bank account of the doctor. Then there are some patient receivables. So we configure them and then we send a link to the patient, explain to them why they have to owe the money, then get money from the patient, reconcile it, show it to the doctor. So manage all of that for them. You spoke about like that observing patient and giving him feedback and all that. So that you're saying is going to go live after a year? No, it's live already. This was a video podcast I've shown you a demo of it. It's quite fascinating actually. We may make a personal course there and some other time I can show you a demo of that actually. I can send you a link to this call where you do the you do your assessments in front of a laptop, you follow a guided coach, you have to develop your own content, and then a report gets generated very similar to a blood report that your range of motion is so. Now, we've started doing that sometimes, but we have not, obviously, we have to get that clinically validated. It works in all conditions, all body types, uh, before it starts being used for medical purposes. So it's live yet, we're evolving it. And we have a partnership with Manipal University, which is the number one allied school in India, right? So now they are testing this over a range of 150, 200 patients and see if the accuracy the results holds true across all of them. There must be a lot of treatments. No? So you're creating this coaching module for each of those treatments. There must be like two, 300 different treatment plans. So there are, they're called assessments. So there are 200 different types of functional assessment depending on the body part and depending on the injury. Right. So functional assessments we call them. Why are they called assessment? This is an exercise, right? Yeah, so there are two parts. So there is assessments and there are exercises, right? So you're right. 
So right now, what we have digitized is automated is the assessment part of it. Right, exercises we have not yet automated digitized. So assessment is my sister used to ask me turn the hand around, so you do touch the body part. You know the extent of the pain, right? And you know how your recovery is on the track or off track. And assessments are easier to do. So my my theory was that people are it's going to be impossible for people to switch on the laptop every day and exercise in front of a laptop. That's very it's not a normal user way. But if you have to do something periodically, then the chances of doing that. So we wanted to nail that use case first before we move to exercises. We're focusing on assessments, and there are 200, and there are like 400, 4,000 exercises. So there are exercises are 200, then that's 4,000. So there are 4,000 different exercises depending on the body part, depending on the extent of the injury, and depending on your age also. So that we are in the process of digitizing, but at this point we've digitized the entire assessment protocol. Like which, so if you are a dancer, ballet dancer, for example, and you want to, you want strong toes, you want to assess if your toes are on track, your legs are on track, then you can do that. If you're a swimmer, then you need a higher, stronger lower back, right? If you're a golfer, you need stronger wrist. So then there are assessment program for different cohorts based on your profession and based on your... So in these assessment programs, they would see a video that stretch your arm like this and then they would have to copy that. Yeah, so it will be a guided program where basically you were taken one by one step. So we developed our own content, right? And it's interactive. So there are two steps, step one, step two. The content would ask you to do step one. Once you do step one, then the content will move to step two. So we have a personal coach rather than a synchronous coach, right? What on YouTube or in different fitness apps, would be that they do something and you're doing isolation. Here, if you're doing one rep, the other rep will only start when you finish that one rep. So, very interactive and that's how we develop the content and the product. So, there's almost like a chatbot. So, when you do that, then it'll say, it'll probably say, okay, that's great. Now, let's do something like that. Yeah, that's what. So, doesn't machine learning need a lot of computing resources? So, do you do this on device or how do you do that? Yeah, so it's a very good point, actually. <laughs> Glad you asked this. So, there are, yeah, it does, right? Because there are 30 frames per second and you have to process every frame to actually start making sense out of this, right? And then there are, you have to do key body part detection, you have to do analytics. So divide it into two parts. So one is what you do on the edge, which is on the, so today we're only supporting the browser. We're not even on the mobile yet because we have to get the user experience right and we have to get. So we do very little processing on the, so there are, so there is detail, there is basic analysis and there is detailed analysis. So basic analysis is whether you are doing the right exercises, you're following the instruction, we do it on the edge. It doesn't require too much processing. So for example, if I have to turn left and do it, am I turning left and doing it? If I'm sitting on a chair and doing it, it's so very basic level of processing is something we do on the browser, which is sampling of every three seconds, etc. But we send this video to the backend where we have these cloud infrastructure hosted. Then we process the actual detailed report. That's why the report comes to you by email. So we process the report by email and then send it to you. So it's a very good point. But the job of the front end is to ensure that there is minimal noise which goes to the backend. So if there are two people, you will not proceed. If I'm standing left or right, I'm doing the wrong exercise. So those are basic level of filters you can put. And I think machines up, laptops are powerful enough today to actually do at least that kind of thing. But you want to do involve, you send it to the backend where we have a, obviously a cloud infrastructure which uh, does this processing. This happens pre-appointment or after the doctor? Like at what state does this assessment happen? Various use cases. So if you go to many PD websites, they can just say get a free assessment done. So you can do it. So you're not sure whether you need intervention or not, right? So you can get it done without it. Second case is you are in the middle of a rehab, right? And you're supposed to rehab at home. You will not be able to come to the clinic because you live somewhere far off or you work. You can send this assessment and the doctor can ensure. Third is you're done with your pain treatment. You've not moved to strength and conditioning, but you also want to ensure your pain doesn't come back or your limitations are not So that's why we use it as a great lever for engagement, not as a way for cure. And then, so there are three scenarios we've identified where people can get start of a season, for example, if you're starting a football season, etc. So you can do, there are different triggers of which. Uh, and that's why we leave it. We don't say that we are an assessment portal. We enable the doctor to make this custom assessment for the patient because he knows what his he or she knows what the patient wants. Sends it to them, interpret the report, and do it. We enable the entire create, make it easy for them to create, send it to patients, engage with them. 
like within a clinic, each doctor will have their own login in it where they can look at their patient's case history and make notes. And and there is access control, right? So the clinic owner, the clinic owner looks at data of all patients, all doctors. And the smaller doctor will only look at his. The admin staff can only look at the appointments, reception, the finance can only look at the invoicing, all of that. So then there is because we are now HIPAA compliant. Right? So healthcare is uh, where regulatory uh, regulations are far more important. So we've started with HIPAA compliant. We'll be moving to other compliances later. But sanctity of data, quality of data is very crucial, especially now that we are launching. We've already launched in the US and we want to do some work in the UK also, which are far more stringent. We have to be compliant from day one and make sure of these conditions from day one. Yeah. And what is the pricing at? So the end-to-end package in US, we are selling at $300 per PT, physical therapist per month. And on the billing part, we are charging around 6% of the overall GM. But it sounds like good unit economics. Yeah, definitely. I think economics are very good on this one because we built a platform and we automated most of the things. So in billing, economics can be bad if you operationalize the whole thing, right? If you do the entire claim submission process, data management manually, then it's a very expensive problem in operation. We've automated the entire thing. We've integrated with clearing houses, insurance companies, uh, rule engines, etc., to make sure that it's not an automated process. And because our practice management and the billing talk to each other, so you don't have to have a manual layer in between to do that. If you don't do that, it becomes uh, cumbersome. It also becomes difficult. And our advantage is we focus on one physical therapy, right? So we are the best product in physical therapy. Are we the best product for healthcare? No. But then I think the world is moving from horizontal solutions to vertical solutions, specialized for that industry. And we want to capitalize on that wave. Customer acquisition, how are you doing it? Like you call and send LinkedIn messages. and So yeah, LinkedIn is a good way. So I'm on part of some Reddit group. So I'm part of every active physical therapy community in the world today. And I that's how I, and I had some friends in the US for my Sports Connect from whom I reached out to have. And now we have a customer who are referring us to that. So it started with me reaching out to people. We didn't have a product a few months back. So it was conveying the vision and getting the buy-in and showing them screenshots of how this will look like because product is now ready. It's less than a one-year-old company. So we were developing the US needs a sophisticated product. So relaying the vision, talking to them on how it will look like, how it will shape up. And then obviously keeping a touch point with them. Once they're interested, they knew they referred somewhere else. So it's, uh, now we are slowly moving towards setting up an institutional process. But mostly it was me and my co-founder reaching out to people. And now we started the mailers and all of those things. It's very early in the day to figure out cash. But the margins are like 70-80% on this one. So CAC is never going to be a problem on this one, right? When did you go live? Like when did you first have your first commercial? So we went live in India after the... So we started working with therapists in India, I think in July, after the second wave. So July is when we had the first deployments in India. And then in US, we started going live in December last year, 21. Like India, what is the pricing? I thought you were focused on US, right? Yeah, India is a good test market for us. The science of physical therapy remains the same at both places. So good test market for us to test. Like for example, there are good, there are some really good innovations from India which can which you can use in the US as a differentiator. For example, packages. In US, it's typically been a fee-for-service culture. Like every encounter you build. So no one thinks about that. What? How do I take care of the entire plan of care? India, on the other hand, is a cash economy. You want to lock in the customer for 10 visits. It's a package. is something we developed for Indian physiotherapists. Now, People in US are loving it. And we marry that with the insurance eligibility. That's a great thing, right? So the science is the same. I think India is a good, as I said, it's a growing market. It's not a very big market. It's a growing market. And the other good thing about India is that a lot of Indian physiotherapists have friends in the US who have either studied with them in the bachelor's undergrad. So they refer to us to their friends as well, right? So we are going to be a global platform. So India is going to be a test bed. US is going to be a primary revenue driver. But no reason we are not going to be expanding to Australia. Not Australia, but UK after this, Australia after that. Because physiotherapy... You cannot be a vertical company and also then be another vertical in the company. And then you have to be global if you want to be a big outcome, right? We cannot afford to be both. Uh, so at some point, you have to take a global stand. And I have launched work with Ola in London. And I understand the benefit of actually launching in the international markets on day one. 
uh, it's slightly more tedious and difficult, but I think it rewards in the long term. So that's a call we've taken. But yeah, India is a good place, 100 clinics, right? And I and even when I go and tell someone in the US that I have 100 clinics, that adds a lot more credibility than saying that, okay, you are my first customer. And what is the India pricing? It must be not in the same level, right? So it's 1500 per physiotherapist per month, rupees. So uh, you told me that your sister had that problem of remote consultation, like using Zoom. So is that also built in, like for video consulting? For telehealth is what we are building. Uh, we have not built that in yet because the physiotherapist is not very comfortable using. So since in-person appointments have started, the telehealth consultations are going down, right? So is it like the most... As I said, there was a lot of fundamental problems in this sense. So these are all good to have, right? So accounting is broken, billing is broken, appointment management is broken. So you're seeing so much friction on the fundamental layer only that you want to address that first. And then obviously telehealth will be on top. So telehealth appointments are less than 5% today. And it's not the pro with the clinics that we're working today, right? I'm sure the new age ones will do more telehealth and we'll cater to them at some point. Ideal customer profile today is someone who has a clinic and someone who wants to operationalize it better, use it better, and he wants to expand the business a little, right? We have a better customer service. The ideal customer profile for us. So when we get to our profile, who are online guys, new age guys, the problem with going to new age guys is they don't have that much footfall. So I wouldn't make too much money from them today. So there's an underlying opportunity with the existing providers. They have a good footfall. They are integrated with insurance companies. Make money from them. And then you can actually start catering to them. Right? You want to focus initially as a startup, not be everywhere. So probably in the US, this would not be such a big ask. But in India, it might be important. Do you also do like marketing support, like helping them get customers? Yeah, we are building that out. So that's important. As I said, direct access is increasing, right? So we are not saying that we'll get you more people. It will happen automatically. We are saying we'll streamline your marketing intake, right? So basically, basically you get people from Google, you get people from Facebook also. So understanding all of that, posting the appointment widget to be integrated everywhere. We're giving you a GPT-3 console where you can put in the keywords and content gets generated. You can put on your blog. You don't write the content for you because it's impossible to do that. Right? When a patient goes, we post your Google review to them. When the Google review comes in, we post it to Google My Business page, which automatically updates. So there is so much entry, there is so much search for physical therapy and there is so many broken processes here. We just believe that in the initial days, if we stage the two, automatically the intake will happen, right? And we've done manual experiments to prove that. Does it flatten out after a few years? We don't know. By the time that flattens out, we'll have to see what we can do. But yeah, so we cannot promise that we are not going as a marketing company, we are going as an automation and administration company, right? So you want to take the page that will increase your users. That is a difficult because then I'm also, I don't have a loyalty to two clinics or next to each other. Who would I give the patient to? I don't want to be that conundrum tomorrow. I'm enabling all of them and I'm enabling them tools that they can do to streamline the process better. It's how effectively they use the tools will decide how well they do, right? If I think of it uh, in the world, we would like to be like a Shopify rather than an Amazon. We would like to be a Shopify and that's a call. So because then becomes a conflict, whether you're on the side of the consumer, because there are two conflicting opportunities. Uh, the consumer would want to squeeze most of the doctor provider work. So which was I the same thing? I'm enabling the provider to disseminate care. If I give him enough tools and support, they will be able to get care to everyone at a low cost. That's a call we are taking. It's more of a Shopify approach than an Amazonian approach is what I would say for us. And we believe in, in healthcare. The doctor will always remain at the center of delivery. I think we're far away from automating a doctor. We've not automated cars yet. We're not automating anything. So we're far away from automating a doctor. There is because in the case of healthcare, there's a lot of context. There's a lot of empathy, which is outside of flow, workflows. So enabling the doctor will be a better bet, at least at this point of time. The business will grow too. Like you have some projections, like say by 2025, you will hit this kind of ARR or... So as I said, it's a $40 billion industry in the US itself. And uh, it's growing at a 6-7% CAGR. So by 2025, this industry itself should be a 550 to $60 billion industry. Where as a part of it, is there a $10 billion opportunity? Software. So it's a five to six billion dollar opportunity just in software. Now there are incumbents, it's a broken industry, there are a long tail of operators. So in a five billion industry, you take ten you check up away ten percent of the industry circuit. There's five hundred million ARR opportunity right there. 
this is just the US. I'm not talking the global industry. If you read the ratio, this is right. So yeah, that's the way we're looking at it. And we are playing in the entire value chain. We're not just saying we are a tool company. We're saying we're doing your patient intake, we're doing your billing piece of all that. So the software opportunity is close to five to six billion in five years from now. And if you take 10% market share away from that, that uh, that's not a difficult world because there's only one incumbent, right? It's very, it's a, almost a green, uh, brownfield opportunity of sorts. And then the industry is changing. One incumbent, does that incumbent just provide administrative software or do they also look at? Yeah, it just provides uh, documentation software, documentation software. And just with documentation, they are willing. Uh-huh. So they are not into outcomes the way you are, like that focus on outcomes. Not in the outcome. They, they make reimbursements easy. Nothing beyond that, right? And the good part for us, industry is changing. What is happening is telehealth is now reimbursed. So I can get money for doing telehealth visits. I can get money for remote monitoring. So there was a conflict of interest. Why would a doctor not call me, remote monitor me when I don't make money for that? Others direct access is increasing. Reimbursement models are moving more towards value-based care. So there are a lot of changes happening, paradigm changes happening in the healthcare industry, right? And it has to happen. COVID has changed a lot of things. And the budgets which we see, the national debt which we see because of healthcare spend also is also increasing. So things have to change. And we are the center of all that change. So we are unable the providers to go to the leap, leapfrog to the next level of change, right? So that's where we see the opportunity because people need triggers to move, right? And external triggers are far more compelling than internal triggers. So these external triggers are there. A lot of these external triggers are there which will help us move there. And that brings us to the end of this conversation. I want to ask you for a favor now. Did you like listening to the show? I'd love to hear your feedback about it. Do you have your own startup ideas? I'd love to hear them. Do you have questions for any of the guests that you heard about in the show? I'd love to get your questions and pass them on to the guests. Write to me at ad at the podium.in. That's ad at t-h-e-p-o-d-i-u-m dot in.